I'm Michael Dunn, host of Oregon Rainmakers from KLCC Studios. My guest today is Terry McDonald, the executive director of St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County. McDonald has been at the helm of St. Vinny's for decades and has been instrumental in building the organization into a community stalwart that provides a social safety net through development of innovative solutions, services, and partnerships. Terry McDonald, Executive Director of St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County, welcome. Thank you, glad to be here. Yeah, no, thank you very much for jumping on. Why don't we start from the very, very beginning? Talk about your career and, and, and all the things that led up to you becoming the Executive Director for, uh, for St. Vinny's. Well, my father was the first director of St. Vincent de Paul, and uh, he stewarded the organizations from its inception in the 50s until its death in 84. Uh, I became involved, of course, I uh, came involved in, in, I knew about and worked for the company a number of times during those growing up years. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, when I graduated from college, uh, I was searching around as where I wanted to head in life. And I thought of being a Byzantine historian, and there was not much call for that. And <laughs> I thought about becoming a lawyer, and I thought, well, that's not particularly what I wanted. Uh, and my father had the opportunity to take a vacation uh, at that point in 1971 uh, and asked if I could run the company while he was gone. Hmm. Uh, and because uh, it was a very small company at that point, under um, under 20 employees and uh, its gross receipts were under 100000 well, about $100,000. Uh, anyhow, so I said, sure, I'll be happy to sit in the for yeah, because I wasn't doing anything else. And uh, and when he came back, he said, well, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I haven't decided. And he said, well, until such time as you decide, uh, why don't you stay here? I could use the help. Hmm. And I said, and after a couple of years of working for him, I realized that I had a skill uh, associated uh, with uh, how to make money out of stuff uh, and uh, how to organize things differently. And I thought, well, hang on, wouldn't it be fun if we found a way to use kind of the cast-offs of society uh, to create opportunities to help the cast-off people of society uh, survive better? Uh, and the whole idea of using all of the resources that are cast off uh, to better people's lives was very fascinating to me. And uh, so I kind of just stuck around. Uh, and when he died in 1984, the board in its consummate wisdom said nepotism was a good thing. appointed <laughs> uh, me as a new director, and I've been here ever since. Wow. So starting from that early period of time and, and sort of learning from your father and, 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 and to, to sort of taking the reins yourself. And I love what you said about cast off stuff, helping cast off society. What was Eugene like back then? I mean, there's a lot of people listening to this who are transplants from other places. What was, maybe compare and contrast what the community was like back when you first started to now. Well, we were a timber town. Uh, and if, uh, if you think about that whole period of time, especially from the, late 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. I mean, this was the Emerald Empire, they called it. Uh, and, uh, and and we harvested an enormous, enormous amounts of Douglas fir. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I remember looking over the city from Blatton Heights uh, during the 1970s, just after I graduated from high school. And it looked like the entire floor of the valley was on fire hmm. uh, because of the wigwam burners that burned the sawdust that was left over from the sawmills. Hmm. Uh, and, and so it was very much a, uh, it was a timber, a timber town. Uh, and that's, that's what we did. Uh, and 
So there were two things in Eugene that happened. You had the, the mills, uh, where if you were graduated from high school, you could just go straight to a mill and go to work. Uh, and then there was the university. So the town and gown really meant town and mill. Hmm. Uh, that came to an end in the 1980s. Uh, and in the 1980s, the last of the big trees were harvested. Uh, and when that happened, we went into severe depression in this community uh, with a huge unemployment rate, 20, 25% at some point. Uh, and the mills just shut down. And, uh, and that whole industry, that whole economic base of the community went away. Uh, so it was since that time, of course, we've been slowly but surely evolving out as a different community. Uh, but during that early period of time, it was about the mills. And I would imagine that in that time when the mills shut down, a lot of people, all of a sudden, those paychecks weren't coming. And so I imagine that there was a lot of economic shock that was felt community-wide, but certainly on an individual level, that probably necessitated where you were sitting saying, wow, you know, I, there are a tremendous amount of people that now maybe need our services more than ever. Well, you exactly hit the nail on the head on that one. Uh, so in the mid-1980s, uh, at the depth of the recession in this area, uh, the board and staff, uh, which was at that point in the mid-20s in terms of staff, got together and said, we have a responsibility to address some of our community needs to our best of our ability. Uh, that was affordable housing because people were losing their houses because they lost their jobs. Uh, the need for job creation, uh, because the unemployment was ridiculously high, uh, and then robust emergency services. Uh, and so how do you create that? How do you create that in a community that's in a, in a, in a depression? In essence, there's, there's no money to do much of anything. It was at that point that we discovered that the waste stream was a very rich source of products and stuff. Um, and uh, so that's when we went to Glenwood and started collecting materials at the Glenwood transfer site um, and uh, discovered that you could get two or three tons of stuff per week out of that transfer site that was reusable. Everything from shoes, belts, purses, dishes, pots and pans, appliances, whatever. Uh, and we said, well, hang on, maybe we could plunder other people's dumps. <laughs> uh, and uh, eventually ended up uh, going to California to dumps 500 miles away, uh, pulling product out of those dumps and transfer sites. Um, which then allowed us to create the economic base for St. Louis Paul to grow its business operations to the point where they are today. When that was happening, I realized, you know, the 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 uh, maybe maybe the death of timber isn't the right word, but the certainly the retrenchment or the retreat of timber in this community. I realized that that can be kind of perhaps seen as a a bit of a slow motion economic calamity. But I imagine where you sat at that time, it, did you ever feel like, wow, this is, this is such a big shock to our community. I don't know if we're going to be able to respond or, or I don't know that we're going to be able to survive where a lot of other businesses and a lot of other people were, were having such a hard time. Well, Eugene Springfield, uh, you know, Lane County actually has many advantages uh, that was not going to allow that to happen. So, you know, remote communities like Oak Ridge, uh, the closing of a mill was absolutely destructive to the economy. Uh, and if you went to, you know, Notai or some of the smaller communities where mills were out there, uh, the loss of those mills was a, a death knell. Um, 
but having said that, uh, in Eugene Springfield, we still have the opportunity to rely on the University of Oregon, mm -hmm. the education part, uh, a pretty well-educated population as a result of that, uh, and really, really came down to is we just need to recalibrate. Uh, and, uh, and that's been something that took a while to figure out what that recalibration looked like. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, now we have a much more robust mixed economy than we did back in the 1970s, 80s, 90s. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, that part, that recalibration has been important. Uh, so I never lost hope that we could come out of it. Uh, but I did believe that the not-for-profit community had a responsibility to assume some of the mantle of how we were going to get from from one point to the next. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've talked to a lot of uh, people about the nonprofit industry in, in, in Lane County, and it's it's big. We are we are a county that has a tremendous amount of nonprofits. But again, going back to when you were just starting out, talk about the nonprofit community when you were just leading this organization. I imagine it was quite a bit smaller. And, and, and I imagine that St. Vincent de Paul and yourself had a, uh, a hand in maybe growing that industry. Well, uh, the short answer is yes. Um, so it was much smaller. It was a much, you know, in terms of uh, what the outreach and where we were going as a nonprofit community was uh, was much a different emphasis. Uh, so, you know, the degree to which you needed to have services for the unhoused uh, back in the mid and early uh, 80s, you know, that, that didn't really exist. We didn't see the unhoused problem until you got to the later 80s, 90s, and then, of course, into the aughts, uh, that, that crest had never had not come up. Um, and, uh, and so, obviously, the social services associated with that were just not there. Hmm. Uh, it was a much more robust set of other nonprofits, and, you know, things like Green Hill or Food for Lane County. Uh, Food for Lane County, during that period of time, was taking over from the old uh, bountiful food programs where it was surplus cheese and things like that and creating a whole different system of distribution of food. Um, but we had a pretty good base of nonprofits that were interested in community needs, uh, women's space, uh, Willamette treatment, as they say, um, you know, uh, Eugene, uh, Eugene Affordable Housing, uh, which is now a shelter care, um, you know, the uh, uh, cahoots uh, associated with Whitebird. All of those were heritage uh, nonprofits that were growing up during this period of time. Uh, that have grown, of course, exponentially since those or since those days in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so, what's happened really is a diversification of the community uh, to address the various other needs of the community as we've gone forward. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to take our first break. We're talking with Terry McDonald. He's the executive director of St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County. We'll be right back. I'm Barbara Dellenbach, host of KLCC's Oregon Grapevine. Sky Stickney is the Eugene Area Director for Young Life and the coach of Churchill High School Boys Varsity Basketball Team. He says the roles are deeply connected. We get to use basketball as an opportunity to say, the man that you will become, the character you have, is developed from the adversity you face. When things don't go your way, when we're met with a challenge, how are you going to respond to that? Youth participation in groups and in life on KLCC's Oregon Grapevine, klcc.org. We're back. We're talking with uh, Terry McDonald, the executive director of St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County. So, so, so talk about St. Vincent de Paul as an organization. Uh, you know, give us the 30,000 foot view of what you do. Well, the organization has diversified from its traditional small thrift base and volunteer base 
uh, to an organization that has multiple areas of uh, interdependent activities. Uh, so affordable housing. Uh, we have currently around 1,600 units of affordable housing, uh, everything from SROs and mobile home parks to single family dwellings and apartment buildings uh, that we've developed over the last 30 years, uh, primarily for families at low income, uh, at 50% of median income or less. Uh, with that, of course, comes the social services that are associated with it, and all that's part of the property management and development department associated with things. Well, that's kind of one node. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the traditional node of the uh, thrift stores. Uh, so over the years, it's grown from you know one store to uh, 13 stores uh, and a car lot. Uh, and that, of course, has been one of the economic drivers for the organization. Uh, and associated with those stores is the recycling waste-based businesses. So whether that's uh, appliance recycling or whether it's um, uh, mattress recycling or whether it's uh, commodities recycling, like polystyrene or paraffin uh, or other materials, lots of different materials that we um, garner from the waste stream, uh, all of that with the stores are kind of one of the economic development drivers of the organization. Uh, then associated with that is the emergency services part of the organization. Uh, so that's the Lindholm Center and First Place Family Center and Associated Annex and the uh, various homeless or unhoused populations that we serve through uh, the safe sleeps and overnight camping programs and the Dawn to Dawn program. So all those things on the associated with emergency services are really the other leg of it. Um, they all are interrelated and depend upon each other. Uh, so the stores and its business parts rely on the community to donate to them uh, to support those activities, uh, as well as going to the waste stream and getting that product, uh, and also creates the uh, place for employment for people with multiple barriers to employment that come from other programs of the organization. Uh, uh, and they also create the revenue that helps support the charitable activities, the same as people, uh, like the emergency services that we do throughout the community. Uh, in addition to that, of course, we have uh, the affordable housing, uh, which helps create the stable platform for community members to live in, uh, to not just work for us, but for every place, every, anybody else in the community. And we support a lot of that development because all of those activities can be funded through the stores operations that create the opportunities to do the pre-development to get into the development world. Uh, all of that glued is held together through our interstate trucking division. Uh, so we have a lot of trucking that we move product around uh, and that can be food from Food for Lane County to go out to the shelters or it can be laundry services associated with the Egan warming centers or it can be uh, moving blankets and bedrolls from one place to the other during emergency situations. Uh, which all feed together to create a kind of sustainable mass. And all it's being driven by the fact that if we have a waste stream that is, is robust uh, and disciplined, there's ways to create capital out of that, as well as jobs and resources that can feed the other parts of the organization. So it's really a circular economy. As you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking, Wow. First of all, I bet you most people don't understand how many different basically business lines you've created at St. Vincent de Paul. Now, I imagine being at the organization for as long as you have, did you kind of uh, bolt on these services over time? I mean, how did you build 
an organization which, in all honesty, has as many business lines as any pretty good-sized corporation in town? Well, uh, th th there's two answers to that. Number one, uh, opportunity presents itself. Uh, and uh, when there's an opportunity that is being left on the table, uh, I generally try and say, is there a way that we can do it? Uh, so in the mid-1990s, it became very clear that we were going to ban the gases that run refrigerators, chlorofluorocarbons, because they were depleting the ozone layer. Sure. And no one had tooled up to do that recycling. Uh, so we tooled up uh, to become the first EPA-certified recycler in this area. And so when the law went into effect that appliances had, refrigerators had to be recycled, we already were there. And so we were contracted by many districts around this region and continue to be re, uh, recyclers of the refrigerant for refrigerators. And that gave us an opportunity then to, of course, get that product, to take some of the product and return it to useful life through by rebuilding that product. And we rebuild about 200 appliances per month. Um, and then at the same time, create revenue out of that for ourselves. Uh, so that disciplining of the waste stream was one part of the whole equation. But the second part of the equation is we also have follow, decided that we're going to follow where the community needs are. So, you know, whether it's affordable housing, which we looked at in the late 80s and early 90s and said we need affordable housing. Uh, and so we set up that division of the organization to develop affordable housing or whether it was expanding our homeless services. Um, you know, we never had uh, shelter activities for homeless. Uh, back in the 1970s or 1980s, uh, all of that was pursued, you know, we presumed as a community, not just the same as Paul, but as a community, uh, that would be dealt with by the mission, which mm. continued to do a great service. But the needs of the public exceeded the capacity of the mission to deal with that. And so we have responded to the community needs as we perceived of them, where there was other organizations that couldn't do it, we decided to step into that place. Uh, so basically, it's finding a way to discipline the waste stream in a way that creates capital and jobs and employment, but also taking advantage of uh, of looking where in the marketplace we should niche ourselves in terms of serving the public in a better way. Obviously, the continuing and evolving crisis of homelessness in our in our region is is on. Everybody talks about it, and it is a huge problem. Define that better in terms of your role and how, how you've been able to insert yourself into one of the solutions or at least uh, uh, one of the ways in which you're making it better for our community. Well, so homelessness has, uh, has really morphed in terms of a social problem, largely because of the economic base and the cost of living in this area. Uh, so we have an extremely low vacancy rate, and we do not have a lot of surplus housing available. And it's one of the things the governor actually pointed out, is that we as a state need an extra 80,000 households or dwelling units per year and just to meet some of the demand out there. Uh, so what we've seen here is low vacancy rate, um, incoming population that then drives up the cost of rent, which then displaces people at, at low income or on fixed income. Uh, so that change has created a real problem that uh, St. Paul has been trying to deal with through its various emergency services in cooperation with the public sector, Lane County, City of Eugene, State of Oregon. Uh, we also have to recognize that we have to build units of housing that are affordable or otherwise faster. Mm. Uh, 
some of this is being driven by the unhoused issues. Some of it's being driven by fire uh, because, you know, we have seen a lot of people's homes, whether it's uh, the McKinsey or in Southern Oregon, being consumed by fire. They just are very difficult to replace very rapidly. Uh, and the cost of housing has just gotten extraordinary. So that was one of the reasons we approached the legislature last year and said, if you would allow St. Vincent Paul to steward a new organization that would manufacture mobile homes at, that would be affordable for people at lower income, uh, we will do that. And that's how Hope Community Corporation uh, evolved. Uh, and that facility is being developed at 888 Garfield Street that will produce up to four new mobile homes per day uh, starting in October of this year at a price point that is quite attractive. Uh, two bedroom, one bath, uh, single wide, uh, 720 square foot unit for around $60,000 hmm. uh, or a double wide, uh, 1,250 square foot, three bedroom, two bath for around 110,000. Um, very competitive in the marketplace, high quality, fire resilient, uh, super energy efficient, um, a way for us to help fill some of the void in the housing that we have out there as a need as our community. So it's an ev evolution of these various things coming together to create uh, new opportunities to house people in a better way. Got it. Got it. Well, we're going to take our second break. We're talking to Terry McDonald of St. Vincent de Paul of Lane County. We'll be right back. Well, as the years go by, you realize that the things that you use every day are not there by magic. They are there because somebody else took the time to build them, to maintain them. So if you're thinking about what to do with a vehicle you no longer need, when you donate it, it's going to be part of something even bigger than yourself. Get all the details at our website, klcc.org. We're back talking to Terry McDonald, the executive director of St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County. Um, listening to you talk, uh, it's obvious that you're an entrepreneur and, and the way that which you've built St. Vincent de Paul's in our region relies on that entrepreneurship. And, and you've also mentioned several times the idea of the waste stream. Can you talk a little bit about how you saw how much people either throw away or, or, or want to give away and you saw an opportunity I almost want to use the cliche about one man's trash is another man's treasure, but maybe one man's waste is another man's treasure, and how you've been able to incorporate it into, as you talked about, a great circle of, of inputs and outputs for St. Vincent de Paul's that keeps your organization running. Well, uh, so, for, you know, for better or for worse, we're a, a consumer-driven society, mm -hmm. uh, which means we have lots of stuff. Uh, we like to replace our stuff, uh, and when you replace our stuff, where does it go? Uh, and it often goes into the waste stream, mm -hmm. I mean, transfer sites and dumps. It's a low common denominator. And one of the things that we learned early on is that if you go to major urban areas like you know Portland or San Francisco or the Bay Area or whatever, uh, <clears throat> what you'll find is that people in highly, uh, highly dense populated areas have very few opportunities to really get their stuff into its proper place. Uh, so it ends up often just going straight to the waste stream, even though it has substantial value. Mm. Uh, by interfering or inter injecting ourselves into that flow, it gives us the opportunity to, to discipline the waste stream in a way that you wouldn't normally think possible. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, we, you probably don't think about it, but uh, 
we are discarding books in this society at a rapid rate. We're also producing more books very at a rapid rate. Uh, the number of published books this year exceeded last year's and the year before that. So mm. we are publishing a lot of books, but a lot of books have to be also recycled. There's just so much pulp out there. Uh, and one of the things that we recognized was is that libraries, our friends of the library programs, are often the places where those books are being discarded. Because if you're running a library, you can't put everything on the shelf. There's just too many new titles out there. Sure. There's a lot of books that don't ever, ever end up being checked out. So libraries are doing the wise thing. They're digitalizing anything that's old and that if it's not been checked out, and then they're discarding it. Likewise, friends of the library programs try and support their local libraries, get a lot of donations. But much of it is just redundant stuff that can't be sold in the marketplace or can't be checked out at the library. Uh, so we've worked with friends of the library uh, in California and Oregon and Washington. And we derive out of those various friends of the library programs in California about 80 to 100,000 pounds of books per month. Wow. Um, with that, that gives us the opportunity to actually have a very robust departments in our stores that are devoted to books that people really want to read, but they just need to get a place to get them. And likewise, we have an online presence to sell those books that are more collectible online. Uh, that's what disciplining the waste stream really means. Uh, finding a way to take things that are unique in the marketplace that have value and finding a way to get them to us in massive quantities that can then be turned around and capitalized. Sure. Uh, that's really how it all works. Yeah. Talk about clothing, because obviously I think that, you know, there's <laughs> what little I understand. A lot of time people maybe don't realize when they buy a, a, a garment online and they don't like it and they or it doesn't fit right and they return it. Sometimes that online retailer can't resell it. And so it ends up in a waste stream or it's it's this concept of fast fashion and people should order three uh, shirts instead of one to see if it fits well. And then those other two kind of get lost in the waste stream. I imagine, you know, clothing is such a, and not to cast aspersions on our society, but it's it's almost become this sort of disposable uh, 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 element that I imagine can clog up the waste stream pretty well. Well, uh, the, so the, the uh, recycling of clothing is one of the oldest of the recycling uh, activities uh, in the world, uh, going back <laughs> into literally to the Neolithic period. Uh, and if you think about uh, the late 19th century in the United States in the major urban areas, the old ragged bone man that would walk down the street shouting out to anybody in the tenements, rag and bone, send me your rag and bone, uh, <laughs> it could then be turned into other products. Uh, uh, so that's an actually very well-disciplined world. But you're right. Uh, we consume enormous amounts of clothing and recycle enormous amounts of clothing. Uh, and most of that comes through uh, the waste stream uh, or through donations to not-for-profits like Goodwill or St. Paul uh, and, uh, and find a secondary market in the stores or operations or in a tertiary market going elsewhere in the world. Uh, about 10% of the clothing that discarded it does not go into the thrift world. Uh, it goes into the waste stream and finding a way to pull that product out in a more disciplined manner is something that we're always working on. So uh, we'll continue to figure out new ways to do that. How about electronics? Obviously, I think that that's, that's another 
stream that, especially with, you know, I mean, if people buy computers or iPhones or something like that, and then there's an update in a year, and then they have this old phone. Does that kind of factor into what y'all do? Well, the, the good part about electronics is that we have a product stewardship bill that actually makes sure that there's an opportunity to recycle them back into other components. Uh, product stewardship is probably one of the most important features of moving forward in disciplining the waste stream. By that, I mean, when you buy a new piece of electronics, whatever it is, there's a fee charged in addition to the cost of the material to recycle old electronics, whether it's a television or a computer or whatever else. Uh, and then you know, that fee is paid to groups like St. Vincent Paul uh, that, that would then aggregate that non-usable electronics send it back to processors who then pull the components apart and recycle them. Uh, you know, we have seen that with a bottle bill going back 40 years in the state of Oregon. Uh, we've seen it uh, with electronics. Uh, we had the first paint stewardship program in the United States where, you know, we can recycle all of our paint. And just this last year, uh, the uh, state, state of Oregon passed a mattress recycling bill uh, where next year in 2014 or 2024, uh, we'll be able to recycle all the mattresses that normally would have gone through the waste stream. Uh, they will now be recycled. And for those that don't know that, uh, Savings de Paul is the largest mattress recycler in the United States. And we invented the industry about 22 years ago. Wow. Wow. Talk about how you've been embraced by this community. I mean, obviously, you've done so much in building up the organization, but I imagine Maybe Eugene Springfield was the right place to be the entrepreneur that you have been to be able to uh, do all the different segments that you do. Well, Eugene and Springfield, Lane County, uh, is a unique place. Uh, it does have a high degree of uh, social integration. Uh, it has an educated and in touch uh, population that's interested in environmental issues and social issues. Uh, it's also a very caring and compassionate community. Uh, and so, you know, it's all we have done over the years is just trying to tap into those needs of the community, followed uh, by making sure that the public knew that we were being an honest steward uh, to try and do the best we can with the resources out there uh, to make other people's lives and the environment a better place. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that uh, the public has responded over the years that they watched St. Vincent Paul uh, grow and address community needs in a way that are quite unique. Uh, and I think that anytime you have an organization that is a community-based organization, my board is from here, mm -hmm. it supports the community from here, uh, it has no axe to grind other than helping the community, uh, I think that that kind of honest broker is needed in most communities. Uh, and in this particular community, uh, I think St. Vincent Paul has helped fill that niche. Yeah. Um your organization has evolved greatly over the years since you since you've taken the helm. But talk a little bit about maybe the evolution of thrifting of of people who don't necessarily need to go into your stores but want to. Yes, that's a, that's actually a very accurate. Um, so when I began my career, actually when I first looked at the industry when I was a child, and this is going back in the nineteen fifties. Uh, thrift stores were generally smelly, dark, and not particularly well-organized. Uh, and people that went there went there because they had to go there. Sure. Uh, they had no other opportunities. They didn't have enough capital to get materials. Uh, that revolutionized in the 1970s. 
and it was at that point that uh, a number of not-for-profits and for-profit thrifts were evolved uh, that uh, changed the look and style of stores from being small, dark, and uh, smelly uh, to large, open, clean uh, environments where it was a, actually a pleasant shopping experience. And that revolutionized the thrift industry. Mm. Uh, so instead of being a place that was kind of like, well, this is a place of last resort, it created a shopping experience that was like a treasure hunt. Uh, and and this is something for every age group. Uh, thrift, offer, thrift stores offer a wonderful opportunity to not only have good value and bargain, uh, but to find unique and interesting products uh, that would normally not be seen anywhere else. Uh, so fast fashion and mass fashion gives you one thing. The thrift industry gives you everything, but in a u- unique setting and a unique opportunity. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> my my, my uh, 18-year-old daughter would attest to that. She she loves going there because you're right. It is like a treasure hunt. It is it is something fun. You know, uh, uh, Terry, my last question for you is, if you, if you could maybe uh, talk about the next few years looking forward in terms of, uh, are, are there potentially new revenue streams, new ways of business, new offerings that, that, that you're looking at? Yes. Uh, because of the collapse of the, uh, of the materials recovery facility uh, uh, waste stream, and that was where we put all the what we perceived as recyclable in a blue box that was rolled out to the curb and taken back to a facility that sorted the product into what its components were. That industry collapsed about 10 years ago. Uh, and as a result of that, we're now moving as a society back to source separation, hmm. which means when when you recycle glass, it's in one container. When you recycle number one plastic, it's in another container, and so on down the line. We don't commingle that anymore. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, the opportunities to create jobs and employment out of that are growing exponentially. Uh, and it's going to be one of the fastest growing businesses uh, that we that we see created in the next few years. So whether it's making plastic lumbers or returning styrofoam back into styrofoam that's re-extruded back out, uh, whether it's uh, taking the components out of um, other plastic streams and, and remanufacturing them, uh, I see an extremely large potential for a growth associated with the businesses of recycling of the various commodities that can create new jobs and employment in our communities. Yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting. Well, Terry McDonald, Executive Director of St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County, thanks so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. That was our conversation with Terry McDonald of St. Vincent de Paul Society of Lane County. St. Vinny's operates so many projects that serve individuals in need, as well as the entire community. This has been the Oregon Rainmakers podcast on KLCC. I'm Michael Dunn, your host. Thanks for listening.